Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Play on the words there uh, that we find in Matthew 5 through 7 uh, specifically, um, where Jesus is preaching the most famous sermon ever heard. It's the famous Sermon on the Mount by Jesus up on the mount with his disciples. Uh, not just the 12 disciples, the, it tells us at the end in chapter 7 that many heard his word, but uh, this is, in this sermon, Jesus bringing his message. This is the heart of the kingdom of God. This is what God is like. This is what Jesus has to say. It shows us um, really the nature of the kingdom of God, and many people believe that Jesus, everywhere he went, we, we see there's a couple other times that the sermon, on the, like, like some of these teachings from the Sermon on the Mount are, are spoken by Jesus in, at other times and in other places, and many people believe that this really just embodies Jesus' teaching. Uh, so he would go, and sometimes he would just share a little bit of it and, and talk about uh, the fight against temptation, or he would share about loving your enemies, um, so forth and so on. But th- that's what, what this text represents, the teaching of Jesus. And it's specifically for the followers of Jesus. We talked about that last week. This is not something that you treat like a bag of trail mix and, and just try to be a better person by obeying these things. What you'll find really quick is that um, the Sermon on the Mount is a standard that no human can live up to in their own strength. Verses like, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You have a, a, a tendency, I think, to, the Sermon on the Mount has become very trendy, you know? So you have a tendency, tendency to sort of, uh, uh, you know, zero in on, on the, the popular one, ones here and not the others. But uh, again, the purpose of this passage is to show us not who we can be on our own, but who Jesus is leading and making us to be as not just our teacher, but our Savior, who's given us a different nature, uh, has redeemed us from our sinful slavery, and is making us people of his kingdom through his word, transforming our lives. And so, Man, now more than ever is a time to, as the church, really look at what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? Like, what does Jesus say it looks like? And that's what Matthew 5 through 7 gives us, a description of what it means to be a son and daughter of the kingdom living in his ways. I want to remind you, this Wednesday night, we have another opportunity to connect through uh, a new, we we haven't really like landed on the exact word for what we call it, but I guess for, for now we're calling it a segment. You know, we're TV church now, so we, we call our ministry opportunities segments now. But we have a segment this Wednesday night. Don't you change that channel. This Wednesday night. Um, Wednesday nights at 8.30 p.m., we have a round one fern. This past Wednesday was, was uh, way different than normal. We kind of scrapped what we had planned, and it was more just uh, a pastoral update, just kind of sharing my heart about the moment we're in right now. I want to encourage you to go back uh, after this, check out our Facebook page. That, that, that video is still there to, to watch the replay. Uh, just kind of sharing my heart for us as a church in this very divided time and how can we be salt and light uh, in this moment. So, uh, but this Wednesday, we, we have our regularly scheduled programming and we're going to uh, we're gonna mix it up a little bit. We'll have some special guests. It'll little, be um, uh, also a time to continue to pray together. But I want to invite you, if you have any questions during this sermon, if there's anything that comes up that you're thinking, you're wondering, and if it, maybe it's not just the sermon, but just the text, if there's anything that comes to mind, make sure you let us know about that. You can email us at info 
at solaschurch.com. Send us an email your question. You can DM us. There's many different streams of communication that you can get to us. Whatever is nearest to you, uh, take advantage of that. Let us know your question. We'll do our best to get into it. Uh, and yeah, invite you to join us Wednesday night, 8.30 p.m. on Facebook Live for our segment, Around One Fern. Um, today, as I said, Matthew chapter 5. That's it in the way of announcements. Uh, let's get to our scripture reading today. Um, and I'm reading from the New King James Version. The verses will be up here on the screen. And Mike, I'm going to go ahead and, and go through it myself. All right, bud? All right, so Matthew chapter 5, here is what Jesus says. He says in verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Sorry. Uh, the next verse says, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. And then Jesus says, You are the light of the world. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, let's pray together. Uh, Father, thanks for this moment we have here together and this chance to hear your word. I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight. Help me, God, preach your word. We all pray that you would help me preach your word in a way that is absolutely faithful to who you are and is helpful to our church. I ask that you'd fill me with your spirit. And God, we invite you to speak th uh, through me to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, a very familiar passage here in Matthew 5, and I've got a simple sermon title from this section today that I'd uh, like to start with, and it's simply this, salt and light. Salt and light. If you grew up in church, if you went to any form of VBS, I'm sure you had some activity around learning this concept of being salt and light. But let's look at the context of what we have going on here. As Jesus is speaking to his followers, his disciples, he is telling them first, remember in Matthew 5 in the first 13 verses or 12 verses, Jesus is telling them who God is as a good God who blesses those who often don't expect it or deserve it. Um, we, we looked at that in the Beatitudes. We have this modern heretical thinking about God that says that God helps those who help themselves. That's often the thinking, that um, in order to be a recipient of God's blessing, you have to clean yourself up, button yourself up enough to be worthy of it, as though God could be impressed with us and then say, yeah, I'm going to bless them. That was the modern thinking of the Jewish people at the time. Uh, the Pharisees were the ones who were blessed. They were blessed by God. Why? Because they deserved it. That's what you would expect. But when Jesus comes on the scene here preaching the message and the good news of the kingdom, we see him both embodying this in the way that he's healing the sick, and then here as he's preaching, we see the message of the kingdom is, is the exact opposite. It's not that God blesses those who help themselves, but God comes to help and bless those who cannot 
help themselves. It's grace. It's a message of grace. And uh, that's what Jesus has unpacked for us in the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for great is their reward in heaven. Uh, we, we get, again, the heart that God, the nature, the very nature of God, even from the beginning when God created Adam and Eve, God's heart has always been to bless. This is what makes God good. Uh, in fact, you see that in, in Genesis 1, this great account where God is creating everything, creating the world, putting the days in order, putting the, the, the system and the cycle of life in order. And then he creates man. And the Bible says that the Lord God created man and woman in his image, and it says this, it simply says this, then, they, then God blessed them. God blessed man and woman. God blessed humanity. It's not until sin comes into the world that we see a curse come into this world. Uh, we, we're reminded here by Jesus that God is a good God who wants to bless the world, and often it's not people who we would think deserve God's blessing. But now here in the verses we just read, we see God turning to those that he says are blessed, and Jesus here is now sort of charging them, and he's giving them these identities and a calling on their lives that gives them now the opportunity to see themselves as a blessing. This is, remember, what God told Abraham, this idea that I'm going to bless you so that you might be a blessing. This is the story of the whole Bible. This is the story of history. This is why God blesses us. Uh, God doesn't bless our lives so that we might hoard our blessings and say, look how blessed I am. Get on my level, all right? But God always blesses us with the intent that we might take what he's blessed us with and be a blessing to those around us. And that's what we see here with him telling the disciples, you are the salt of the earth you are the light of the world. You've been blessed to be a blessing. This is restorative language. Uh, this is as we follow the narrative of the Bible. What God is doing here is he's bringing humanity uh, back into full relationship with himself. And we see a part of that is in going back to the original design of Genesis is not only is man brought back into relationship with God, but now man gets to be a co-laborer with God being used in, in, uh, by God and partnering with God to see his beautiful work done in the world. What an incredible opportunity. Like wherever that is, I want to be. Being a part of what God is doing in the world. That's what we see in Genesis 1. We see God making man as, as partners in the creation project to carry forward this vision, this beautiful vision. God makes the raw materials of the earth and then he puts man and woman in the garden and says, okay, now I'm trusting you with this creation. Take it forward. Make it good. Loving creation. And then we know the story follows with sinful rebellion. Sin enters this world and breaks that relationship. But, but from Israel all the way to Jesus here with his disciples to the age of the church, we see God as he accomplishes gracious redemption through his son Jesus. He brings us back to that place. This is what he's always been doing. Creation, God acts in love. Rebellion and fall, man, we act in sin. But restoration, God acts in grace to bring us back to him, ultimately to use us for him. And that's, again, what we see here. He blesses us to be used as a blessing, okay? And he, he explains this 
concept of, of working with him for the blessing of the world, for the world to be brought back to him, by telling his followers that they are, in a metaphorical sense, both, again, salt and light. What an interesting uh, metaphor to use. There's other metaphors of the senses that he uses. This has to do with taste and seeing. But uh, it's, I think 2 Corinthians talks about us being the fragrance of Christ. I like that one. We're also a smell to the world. Okay? But here the metaphor is salt and light. Now, if there's one thing that salt and light both have in common, uh, it's that they both impact and change whatever they come in contact with. When you put some salt on your picanha, it impacts that steak, okay, especially after it comes off the grill or before it goes on the grill. It's much better when it comes off the grill, right? <laughs> Duh, right? Steak is much better when it comes off the grill. You get what I'm saying, though, okay? You put the salt on the steak before it goes on the grill. Light, it's the same thing. It, it, it affects whatever it comes in contact with. In fact, I'm in a dark room right now. If it wasn't for a couple stage lights, you wouldn't be able to see me. And so Jesus is, in using this metaphor, he's talking about the impact opportunity that we have, both salt and light, to bring impact. Now, what kind of an impact? What, what kind of, we t- we're talking about this idea of a blessing, well, there's an incredible parallel here with salt and light that we see mirrored in the book of Psalms. Uh, it's the book of Psalms, it's chapter 34, verse 8, which I don't know if this is still a thing, but this is my life verse, okay? That was really popular in the 90s and early 2000s to have a life verse. I'm bringing it back, okay? Uh, Psalm 34, 8, this was, a, this was uh, one of the words of scripture that the Lord used to call me away from myself to turn and trust and find life in him. Um, it was this invitation from Psalm 34, 8, which says this. It's just that. It's an invitation. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. I, I love this invitation here. It's not just saying, hey, you've heard about it, so just believe what you've heard. Right? We all just took a moment there to list our favorite restaurants. You, you, you might say, man, my spot is the spot. And it's one thing for me to go, okay, I believe you that that food is good. I believe you that Applebee's, fine, I'll believe you that, that Applebee's is maybe still relevant. Probably not. But the invitation here is not just to assume it and not just take someone at their word, but I love that God says this to you and I. He says, listen, you don't have to, to just believe it because someone told you. Come on your own and taste and see for yourself. This was so impactful to me as someone who grew up in the church hearing about the Lord my whole life. And there was a difference that happened in my life when I began to actually engage and taste of the Lord. I began to see, see the goodness of the Lord. It's about inviting us into a personal experience, not just intellectual knowledge. Oh, I think I've been taught that God is good. It's a whole other thing to say, ma'am, I've tasted of the goodness of the Lord. I've seen that God is good. I know firsthand Now, here's what's amazing about this invitation. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 5 is that we are that invitation. Think about that. Taste, salt, see, light. We are the modern invitation of God in the world that through our lives, imagine this, imagine people being able to taste and see the goodness of God through his representatives, through the church being salt and light. That is the impact that we're seeking to make. That's the impact that Jesus envisions for your and my life. It's, by the way, it's who he says we are. 
Uh, Whether or not we're walking in it, that's what we're going to talk about. But he says to you and I that wherever we are, whatever God has called us to, whatever sphere of influence God has placed us in, we exist for people to taste and see that the Lord is good. What an opportunity. What, What a humbling thing that Jesus would say to you and I. Like God wants to use us to bring people to taste and see that he's good. Like that's amazing, that his goodness would be known and experienced through our lives. Now, that's one thing to say as a, as a theory or as an idea. We all probably know that. But what, what does that look like as we break it down, where the rubber meets the road? What does it really mean for us to be that salt and light through which people, we make an impact through which people can know the Lord? Uh, we can be a blessing. How, how, how does that actually unfold? Well, let's look at each of these and see what Jesus said. Uh, first, let's look at this idea of Jesus saying that we are the salt of the earth. Let's, let's look at what he says here. Uh, again, it's there in verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Now, every one of us, we generally know what this could mean because we use salt, all right, um, Hopefully, right? That's a, a normal part of our culinary experience and dining experience. Uh, too much salt, too little salt. Um, I was just talking to Anthony earlier who makes his own sea salt from the ocean. That's amazing. Or from an aquarium or something. Okay, I'm not going to get into it. But, but I mean, we all use salt, right? We, we all are, are, so this is a familiar, relevant concept to us. Uh, but what, what did Jesus mean? What were his listeners understanding when he was saying to them uh, that they are the salt of the earth. You know, this isn't Brazil, so they're, they're not thinking of their picanha, okay? So what, what exactly are they thinking about? Or maybe they were, who knows, okay? Um, here's a couple applications of salt and what Jesus could be meaning about you and I. Uh, the first thing is that in that culture, in the days before refrigeration and Frigidaire and Samsung and LG and KitchenAid, okay? We're on the market for new appliances, that's why I know all the, all the names. Um, Anyway, but in the day before refrigeration, salt was a preservative. It was, it was to preserve the quality of the meat for a longer amount of time without cold refrigeration. And what a great picture of who the church is meant to be. We exist as a means through which our presence exists to bring this preserving work in a very corrupted, decaying, fallen world. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that in the last days, perilous times are going to come, and the scripture tells us that men will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what Paul says is the landscape of humanity, the closer we get to the return of Christ, right? You ever heard the expression like, um, you know, back in my day, things were much better, that kind of idea? Well, the the language of Scripture kind of follows that, that over history, uh, the kingdom of God is breaking in, but the effects of sin are breaking down. And as the church, what a great opportunity to be a preservative, to bring the kingdom of God in such a way that where sin is bringing destruction, the church is there to bring life. What a great vision to bring a preserving presence Um, that's one implication of this. Uh, You may have heard that before. Here's another idea. As the church being the salt of the earth, we also bring this uh, uh, salt also, secondly, salt also induces thirst. That's another thing that salt does, okay? Uh, Salt's 
will make you thirsty. You've heard stories of people being out in the ocean and they drink salt water because they're thirsty and all it does is it makes them more thirsty. Um, it looks like blue Gatorade, but it doesn't quench your thirst the same way. And in fact, induces greater thirst, right? You ever been there before where you ate something way too salty before bed and you woke up at 3 a.m. and you're just like, oh my gosh. All right, um, <laughs> that's happened to me a lot. So the idea here is that salt, it induces thirst. It creates a desire to have a, your thirst quenched. And what another great description of who the church is meant to be, that our presence in the workplace, our presence in our neighborhoods, our, pr- our presence in society, we exist at those that create a thirst for something more. What a great vision for our lives. God, that you would use me to make people thirsty and hungry for you. And then last kind of idea about salt in that culture, which is what Jesus seems to be most speaking about, is a little bit more general, but it's just the idea of what we know salt to be, uh, uh, an ingredient to enhance the taste of something, to bring a greater uh, flavor to something. It is the picanha, the steak with extra, extra, extra salt on it. And Jesus is simply saying that as the church, like salt uh, positively affects the food that it's applied to, we as Christians ought to positively affect the world that we're in. The idea is, is with with speaking about salt, we're going to get to light in a minute, and light talks more about our works, what we do, but it seems like salt has more to do with our ways, and how we live. The flavor of our ways is supposed to bring a positive impact on the world around us. Let me give you a couple examples of this. It's first the ways of our speech. That's one way to think about this. The ways of our speech, how we talk, there's a certain flavor to it that positively affects the world around us. We know that life and death is in the power of the tongue, right? That our words can either build up or they can tear down and look at the visions of, of Colossians 4. Let your speech always be with grace. Notice this, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. This is one of the greatest platforms of our witness is not just are we speaking about the gospel, not just what we're saying when we're talking about the right things, but just the overall contents of my words. Jesus spoke often about how our words reveal the true nature of our heart. You know, there's power in words. God created this world with his words. God sent his son Jesus to be the word. God gave us his living word. And he calls us to bring life with our words. You know, we can be either salt or not with our speech. I mean, I just think about the moment we're in right now, and I want to remind you that um, social media is a form of speech. It wasn't in Jesus' day, but it's a modern form of communication. How are you building up? How are you, are you being salt on Instagram? Are you being salt on Facebook? Are you trying to simply win arguments, or are you actually concerned with winning people? Let our ways resemble that of Jesus' own speech, salt of the earth. So the ways of our speech, another thing we can think about is just more generally the ways of our conduct. And speech can kind of fall into that. But, but just the way that we conduct ourselves, that's what we mean when we talk about how we exist, how we operate, how we make our decisions. How do people see us parenting? How do people see us navigating our relationships? How do people see us treating the, our, our wives, our husbands, 
our conduct, how we, how we go about our business. Now, a lot of people look at this idea of conduct and they immediately kind of throw up red flags and they're like, oh my gosh, this isn't the gospel. You're telling me what to do. Isn't the gospel all about what Jesus has done and has nothing to do with what I do? And, and there's a, a truth there, a half-truth there, that's absolutely right. Our conduct is not the thing through which we, we are able to earn salvation with God. You know, we don't get to heaven and we, there's not like this conduct contest where if it's good enough, you're entered in. No, no, it's, it's, it's not the idea. But the gospel, though it is all that Jesus did, I should say, considering that it is all that Jesus did, one of the things that Jesus has accomplished through the cross, the work of the cross, is he's given us a new nature. He's made us different people. Conduct matters not for our salvation, but because of our salvation, right? And so here's the way that, that Peter explains it in 1 Peter 1. Notice the word conduct's going to be used here three times. But as he who called you is holy, which we could never be holy in and of ourselves, we are sinners who have fallen short of the glory of God. Notice this call, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. Now he unpacks this this for us. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges everyone according to their work, conduct yourselves, your conduct, throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were redeemed, or you weren't sorry, you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but notice where you were redeemed from, from your aimless conduct, that's life before Christ, received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without spot, without blemish and without spot. So, so spot, spot, spot. So Peter is talking about our redemption. And as he talks about our redemption, notice what he says. He says, number one, we were redeemed from aimless conduct. Isn't that interesting? That's life without Jesus. No matter what, you have a conduct. It's just that before Jesus, the way that we are conducting ourselves is that of aimlessness. There's no end in mind. There's no standard. There's no intentional gospel-changing work of, of benefiting those around me, being an example of God. It's aimless conduct. It's just doing things into this emptiness. But when we became saved, we were saved from that aimless conduct for purposeful conduct. Conduct conduct aimed at something. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, whether present or absent, we both make it our aim to be pleasing to God in all things. It's an aim that we would conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay here, that's 1 Peter, with fear. This temporary moment. And again, it's to be a witness. It's to be, as we said, the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Now, I want to point out just this word here of simply, it's a big word, ready? The earth. Okay. You ever heard of it? You ever been to the earth? Okay. Uh, it was pretty cool to see the uh, space shuttle launch a couple weeks ago and look at the different views from earth. Uh, that is Jesus' vision for us as the salt of the earth. That was his vision for the disciples. Uh, Remember Acts 1, verse 8, when Jesus is telling the disciples that he's sending them out, and he tells them, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, notice this, in Judea, and in all, or in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The disciples had a very limited understanding of their impact. They were very comfortable. They were kind of boxed in. They were the salt of Jerusalem, 
They were the salt of Israel. Their, their focus was very boxed in in general. They were kind of um, stuck in a certain proximity, in a certain place, in a sort of a holy kumbaya. And Jesus wanted to broaden their understanding and say, no, you're not just the salt of this little box. His vision for the church was always the salt of the earth, broadening it. And so it's interesting how Jesus sends them to the ends of the earth, outside of just Jerusalem, into Judea and Samaria, but there is this tendency as the church is growing to kind of keep things within the box. To, to sort of live, this is such a tendency as the church, to live in our own little Jesus subcultures. We have our own music, our own t-shirts, our own everything, okay? Which is usually a marketing ploy. <laughs> Someone's making money off that, okay? But uh, we can do this. We can kind of have this, this bubble we live in. And notice what happens in Acts chapter 8. Now, this is Acts 1.8, go into all the world and to the ends of the earth. But Acts 8.1 says this. It says, and at that time, there, uh, there was a great persecution that arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. You see what he's doing with the church? He's shaking the salt shaker, Right? They're comfortable in the salt shaker, but the purpose of the salt is not to stay in the salt shaker with all the other salts, okay? You know what you get when you, when you end up with that? You get a bunch of salty Christians in a bad way, you know, all right? You just have, and that's what we can be sometimes, salty Christians in our little bubble, angry at the world. And Jesus' vision is get out of the salt shaker, Get out of the four walls of the church. To his disciples, listen, I've called you to the end of the earth, and you guys are in your holy kumbaya. So persecution comes, and what the enemy means for evil, God uses for good to scatter the church and to spread the salt. We've got more ground to take. We've got more lives to transform. We, we, we have people in Judea and Samaria that need to have a taste of eternity. We have people to the ends of the earth, even in Boca Raton, that we've got to spread this thing out because they're going to be in close proximity with the Christian and they're going to make them thirsty for something greater. We have other regions to affect. Isn't it amazing how God uses this for good to get Christians out of the salt shaker? You know, I, I feel like we're, we've kind of been in a moment like that. Um, I mean, we've been bound in our homes for a large part of this. But, and don't get me wrong, I miss Sundays together. In fact, that's something we need to always fight for. That's where uh, we, we, we see the body representing what heaven will look like as we come together, as we make visible the work of Jesus as a spiritual family. Um, and that's always the call, is not to forsake that. But sometimes we can make it so much about Sunday that we reduce Christianity to a service and we reduce the saltiness of ministry, the effectiveness of ministry to a pastor. And so for the past 15, you know, 20 years before this, that was the, one of the main ways that you saw evangelism happen. Come to my church, man. You gotta come, to, you gotta come hear the gospel. And, and certainly, like we wanna do that. That's in scripture. First Corinthians 14 talks about bringing non-believers into the assembly, them hearing the gospel. But most of the time when you see ministry and mission being mandated and encouraged and you see that calling on the church, it's being done by people like you, the people you're with. It's the vision of salt. It's not one big salt grain called the pastor. It's the people of God spread out. And that's kind of happened in this moment. I want to ask you, how have you taken advantage of it? 
as the Lord has forced us into our neighborhoods? Have you befriended more of your neighbors? How are you being salt in your neighborhood? As God has kind of brought us out of the four walls of the church and brought us into the four walls of the camera, you know, but as he's brought us out of the four walls of the church, how has he called you to positively impact the world around you? Um, ultimately with our conduct so that people might taste and see that the Lord is good. And then lastly, we see Jesus saying that we are the light of the world. Uh, by lastly, I also mean secondly. There's two of them, right? You have salt and you have light. First, you are the salt of the, wor- uh, of the earth that speaks to our conduct, the way in which we live our lives, the flavor of our lives, which I just left out a big part of that, but um, just to reference it real quick, um, Jesus, his emphasis is ultimately on your flavor, right? What's the flavor of your life? He says if salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing. I think we all would admit that we don't want that to be said of our lives. I want my life to be good for something, okay? I certainly want it to be good for the kingdom of God. And so a good question to be asking myself is, when people get a sample of my life, of my conduct, what do they taste? What do they walk away with? What, what, what sort of, a, of an impression do they get? What sort of effect does it have? And is it possible that we're in a season where we've lost some of our spiritual flavor We've been going through the motions, and Second Timothy describes kind of having a form of godliness but denying its power. The good news is that when we come to God, or when we find ourselves flavorless, the Lord doesn't throw us out, okay? It says that it's trampled underfoot by men, and that, that may be true of salt that doesn't have flavor, but that's not true of the Lord. Aren't you thankful that as flavorless as we get, God never discards us? He always wants to bring fresh vision, fresh blessing on our lives to be effective for his glory. So we can come to him and he'll reflavor us uh, for his glory, okay? The light of the world. So that was a little footnote that I left out that was really important, okay? Uh, Then he says this, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on the hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. The second illustration of light, You are the salt of the earth, and now you are the light of the world. Now, this is an interesting, uh, obviously this is a consistent biblical metaphor, right? Even from the very beginning, we see darkness and light, God separating these two things. And that would be a metaphor to to describe uh, what God would see as a complete delineation in this world. There is darkness and there is light. There's a tendency in our modern culture to sort of blend things together and say, who knows what's light, who knows what's dark, more relativism is the word, and you know, the, the, there is no, I was, saw, saw an interview the other day with um, Ricky, I'll just tell you, it was like Ricky Gervais and Russell Brand, and uh, two strong spiritual leaders, and they're actually comedians, and they were talking about faith, and, and one of the things Ricky Gervais was saying is, is he was saying, kind of like it's obvious, you know, moral, moral relativism, it's obviously, like, who am I to say there's no such, I don't know what's absolutely right or wrong, right? Like, who knows? Um, who am I to say to you what's right and what's wrong? And then he goes on to proceed to say how wrong it is to tell others what's right and wrong. Wait, so then is it right? Are you absolutely sure that that's wrong? So it just kind of breaks down when you blend those things together. It's just a logical fallacy to act like there is not an absolute standard that's written on our hearts by a God who divides light from darkness. He calls one thing good, he calls another thing evil. And the Bible does describe a generation that will come, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. Um, 
But God has no problem seeing the difference between dark and light. And this metaphor is used often to describe the works of sin and the works of of God, the works of the kingdom, beauty, goodness. And, And so Jesus, right, when he comes into the world, he is the light shining in the darkness, which is kind of confusing here, right? Because Jesus says to the disciples, you are the light of the world. But isn't that one of Jesus' I am statements? Right? Jesus in John 8, he says that, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So which is it? Is Jesus the light of the world, or are we the light of the world? And by now, if you've, if you've sat under my teaching for longer than two weeks, you know that the answer is yes. Okay? So who is it, Jesus or us? Now, what, what a great uh, picture that we see actually all throughout the scriptures, that uh, we, we are the light of the world. Jesus is saying that, but we are the light of the world because we are in the light of the world. Uh, a great way to think about this is the idea of light, uh, like the moon, right? There's nothing like beautiful moonlight, At night on the beach, hey, you want to kiss? It's really romantic, okay? The beautiful moonlight, if you've ever done like, I've I've done like a moonlight paddle on a paddle board. It's just a beautiful thing to do. Um, They do that, I know, at Island Water Sports. Just a great great experience, you know, with nothing like a full bright moon. But what, what do we know about the moon? We know that the moon, it doesn't, though it's shining a light, it doesn't possess light in and of itself, It exists as merely a reflection. When it's properly positioned in relationship to the sun, it becomes a light to the world. And we know that's a great picture of who Jesus is and who we are. Jesus is the greater light of the world. We are like the moon. We exist to reflect his light as we are in relationship with him. And you see this also, this this thing that Jesus is saying here to his disciples, you see this also in scripture. Isaiah 60 says it so beautifully. Arise, God's speaking to the world, especially, especially to his people. He says, arise, shine, your light has come and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. We see Jesus referencing this actually in chapter four in verse 16, that the people who have, uh, a people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Now, who is this light? Go ahead and type it in. Let's see it, okay? Like, like we're in person. Who is this light? There's one answer, and if you've been to VBS, you know it's Jesus, okay? There's always one answer in, into the church question. Who is it? Jesus, okay? Um, unless it's like the Holy Spirit or something. I don't know. You don't want to mess that up. But anyway, all right? Jesus is the light. He's the light that's come into the world. Arise, shine, your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. This is our testimony that we were in darkness, but Jesus is the light who shined upon our lives. And though we have this tendency to want to hide in the dark because of what our sin reveals, as we come to the light, his light is a light of love, and it covers our sin. It forgives us, and it makes us like him. Notice this next part of Isaiah. Verse verse 2 says, For behold, the, the darkness shall cover the earth, and the deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you. His glory will, see, will be seen by you. Then the Gentiles shall come to your light, and to the brightness of your rising. Isn't that cool? Two different lights. And, and we also see this, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 4. He says in verse 6, For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love that. What a, what a great illustration of your salvation. God looked at you in my darkness and he said, let there be light. Just as he commanded light to shine into the darkness of the deep of this earth, he commanded light to shine upon the darkness of our lives. But notice why, to give the light. 
to give the light. And that's what Jesus is saying here. We have received the light to reflect the light to the world around us. And he's speaking here about our works specifically. This is not just the ways in which we operate, but this is the good works that we do. Uh, Notice he says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Uh, This is how we reflect the uh, the light of Jesus on our lives. It's, It's not doing work so that God would accept us and receive us, but it's doing good works because God has, his light has shined on us, and now it reflects through us to the world around us through our good works. People are led to him. Um, This is what Paul encourages as well in Ephesians 2. He says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Preordained good works that God has for us. Man, there are opportunities every day that you and I wake up to shine the light of Jesus. There are opportunities today before you where you get to and I get to reflect the light of God. Where are those good works ahead of you? we, we got to be diligent. I love uh, Titus 3 says this. It says, this is a faithful saying, and these things I want to affirm constantly, that we who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. You see, this is what it means to be like God and reflect him in light to the world. When God saw our lives, he took the intention to bring light. He, he, it was an, an intentional act of his love. He didn't just say, I love you, but he demonstrated his own love toward us through a good work called sending his son to save us. The intention of that demonstration of love, the demonstration of love in, in, in his intent and, and in his action. And we're called to do the same thing. That's how we can reflect the love of God to the world around us. In love, being intentional to shine our light. And the result of this, I love this, is that people see our good works. They taste and they see. And they're led through us to the greater light. They glorify our Father in heaven. What an opportunity we have right now to shine our light. To go out of our way to do good works. To do good in such a way that brings people to the greater light. You know, remember the context here. In Matthew 5, just prior to this section, um, Jesus is telling his disciples, his followers, that that they're going to be persecuted. That there's going to come a time where, first, they're going to be ridiculed. People are going to talk trash about them. You know, you're you're uneducated. You're an anti-intellectual. Whatever the, the offense may be. You're an intolerant Christian. He said, there's going to come a time when we're going to be reviled. When we shine our light, people are going to, they're going to resist it and they're going to kick back on it. They'll even persecute us. And though that might not be a reality for many of us, experiencing physical persecution, it could be. There are people all around the world right now. Iraq, Afghanistan, North Korea, China, Yemen who are experiencing this in a real way. This experience of of being tortured, of being imprisoned, of losing their job, losing their family members. I mean, right like right now as we speak, it's a present reality for people. But but what Paul is or what Jesus is saying in light of this 
in light of the fact that people are going to come against our light, he's saying, Jesus is saying, don't let that cause you to hide it. He's saying, yeah, there's going to be resistance, but, but don't, a city that is on a hill cannot be hidden. You still have a light inside of you, and, and a light is no good if it's hidden underneath something. So here's what Jesus says, let your light shine. Let it shine. Your light is not meant to, to be hidden, it's meant to shine. So shine your light, regardless of the outcome, regardless of the ridicule, regardless of the persecution. Because though you have forces coming against you, you have a God who is with you. And if God is for you, Paul will say, who can actually be against you? In fact, no, it's the opposite. If God is for you, you have all of heaven working for you. And you have an opportunity. You and I have this opportunity. Let's not be shy about the light that is shining in our hearts. Imagine this, that people could come to taste and see that God is good through our lives. What an invitation for us. And so we, we must first recognize that we've got to taste and see that God is good personally. We've got a taste of the Lord. And so may we first be experiencing his goodness from that, we, we get a, f- a special flavor in our lives from his presence. He rubs off on us. Our ways, our conduct is affected. And as we are tasting and seeing that he's good, his light is shining into our lives. We're walking in the light as he is in the light. And that light that's shining upon my life, it reflects off my light. Because I'm not afraid. I don't hide it. I'm not ashamed of a God who's unashamed of me. salt, I'm light, you are salt, you are light. Jesus says we are salt, the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. May people taste and see that the Lord is good through our lives.